Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us today from Cape Town is Dr. Lizanne Lagenhofen, who is a clinical and radiation oncologist with the Panorama MediClinic in Cape Town. In light of October being Breast Cancer Awareness Month, we continue to raise awareness of this important issue, which affects many women and their families across the continent. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for this lovely opportunity, and I look forward to our discussion this afternoon. Dr. Langenhofen, in a previous session we had with uh, Dr. Daneo Chabalala, we spoke a lot about several risk factors which could trigger breast cancer in women, whether it's from inheriting unfavorable genetics to poor lifestyle choices, be it diet, smoking, alcohol, to diseases like obesity, diabetes, and HIV. Literature and various studies on cancer all remark that the effectiveness of treatment improves with early detection. In your opinion, do you think there's enough awareness about breast cancer? So I think in terms of awareness, um, it's very easy to put the responsibility with someone else and to want to outsource the responsibility to a big company or a drive for someone else. But the truth is that we all have the responsibility ourselves to be our sister's keepers. Um, if you go for your mammogram, you should make a day of it. Take your best friends with you. Take women you love with you. And you can be certain that you are taking care of each other. So I think we all have the responsibility um, to be part of breast cancer awareness and, and not just leave it to someone else. And when you talk about taking ownership of, of your life effectively, so being responsible for, for yourself, for your loved ones, one of the elements which we also chatted about earlier in our offline discussion is the impact of COVID on people either being delayed or, or not going for their regular screenings. Please tell us a little bit more about that. So the, the idea of mammography is to detect cancer before it becomes apparent. In other words, it's ideal that we pick cancers up. Um, the smallest one I've seen has been one millimeter in size. So well done to the radiologist who picked that up. But um, the idea is that if we pick up a small cancer, even if it's a really bad or aggressive subtype, um, our outcomes at 10 years are so much different to when the cancer actually becomes apparent and you can feel the lump and you've got lymph nodes under the arm. So in early breast cancer, we know our cure rates at 10 years um, nears about 90 to 92%. So that should be the reason we go for mammography, that if you were to develop a breast cancer, that your chances of cure would be 90% at 10 years and not 70% at 10 years if you were to have um, clinically apparent disease. Um, so what unfortunately has happened during the COVID period, uh, mammography was one of the non-essential services that was offered. Uh, people were also scared of hospitals. So no one would willingly go into a hospital 
where COVID patients were being treated. Um, so lots of women missed one or two years of mammogram screening and now present with much more clinically apparent disease that would have been picked up had we been able to do the mammograms during COVID. So unfortunately, we're seeing a lot more advanced disease than, than we should be seeing. That's yet another unfortunate outcome of COVID, which has spread its tentacles into every sphere of life. Talking about early detection and correspondingly early treatment, it obviously improves the likelihood of successful outcomes. I know that pain management is part of the process and is also very special interest to you. So can you please tell us about your approach to treating patients with breast cancer as they cope with this life-changing condition? In terms of breast cancer, I hope that everyone knows that breast cancer lumps are usually not painful. So that's something that we really need to drive home. A non-painful lump is very worrying. Of course, it can, what we call inflammatory breast cancer, but um, women often um, think that cancer needs to be painful, but, but please note that breast cancer as a rule is not a painful condition in the breast itself, and it's usually a painless, hard lump that you can palpate. But we do encounter pain in the breast cancer journey. A lot of women will tell you that the biopsy needle itself um, was painful. And, and I do think that although the biopsy itself is painful, I also think it's the amount of anxiety that we enter the room with that taints how we experience that biopsy. Um, and then when we get to the surgical part, um, and, and surgery can range from a small just removal of the lump to um, removing both of the breasts. And this day and age, we don't often remove the skin of the breast. Um, so usually we can do immediate reconstruction, but that still is associated with a surgical intervention that can be painful. What's interesting is if you look at women who are cured of cancer, two-thirds of them will report chronic or ongoing pain after treatment. And a third of that will be um, debilitating. And why does this happen? Um, women who had chemotherapy will often have early onset menopause and they'll complain of sore joints, they'll complain of sore muscles. Um, we get something we call peripheral neuropathy where the nerves in the hands and the feet are damaged by the chemo. And that is one of the things that can be quite severe. I've seen women not being able to pick up a mug um, to have a cup of coffee from peripheral neuropathy. Radiation can cause long-term pain syndromes. And, and often women are unprepared to develop these symptoms because they, it often happens after treatment's completed. So you think that, okay, everything's now fine. I've gone through my treatment. Everyone at work was very supportive during your journey. But now that it's over, they actually want you to get back into the seat and deliver. Um, so often the pain comes at a point where you have the least amount of support and the least amount of grace. Um, so that is why I have the special interest in pain management through every phase. And it looks different. Sometimes you can manage pain by managing an expectation of pain, like for the biopsy. And if you actually just breathe and sit back, you'll find that the doctors take care and they're gentle. Um, using aggressive pain treatment after your surgery. 
um, looking at alternative ways of managing treatment for chemotherapy and hormone withdrawal um, joint pain, you know, encouraging exercise, encouraging a healthy uh, lifestyle lived in a society. Um, so often pain management is not just something I give you. It is something we work on together to rehabilitate you back into society following a very traumatic experience. So it's not as simple as just taking a pill. It's a process that needs to be managed across the different phases. And particularly, as you say, towards the end when you are rehabilitated and going back to normal life. But that's actually where part of the challenge lies. And the other thing that I think is important, we live in this world where we've got instant gratification. We can go and get a Big Mac at night. You can order anything online during the day or at night. You, we've learned that there's something like instant gratification. So when these things do not go away overnight and you're not instantly improved, when it's a process that's really hard, you know, you, you, you can lose a little bit of steam in the recovery process, which even makes it harder then. And, and I do think it's because of our expectations. We want to be cured overnight. We want to be better overnight. We want to go back to being normal overnight. We want to forget overnight. I think that is impacted by the way we live and, and how we see the world. That is so true. Instant gratification is part of our expectations in the world today. You're listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and we're talking to Dr. Lizanne Langenhofen, who is a clinical and radiation oncologist with the Panorama MediClinic in Cape Town. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Dr. Langenhofen, in the previous conversation, we were talking about your approach to managing pain, and we were talking about early detection. One of the other elements that I wanted to chat to you about was the culture within your clinic and the, the setup, um, because it seems to be a very uh, collaborative approach between you and your colleagues and a nurturing environment as you help people walk this journey. I am very, very blessed to be part of an amazing team of doctors at our unit and the unit that I am in. I'm part of a specialized breast cancer unit, a multidisciplinary team. So we have um, a cancer surgeon, two breast plastic surgeons. We are two oncologists. We have a psychologist. We have a geneticist. We have lymphatic rehabilitation. So all of us work together and form the basis of a person's journey. And it's easy because I can just knock on the door next to mine and say, come have a look. What do you think? And I've learned that seeing the same case through different eyes can contribute greatly to the outcome. And then we have meetings once a week where we are again a combined group of, of people. So all of the people I just mentioned. And then we're joined by radiologists, by nuclear physicians, by pathologists. And then we have a case discussion about each new case where we look at it from all of these different aspects. We have then the value of 10 or 15 specialists looking at your case before we decide on treatment. 
So this creates an environment where I function in and I feel safe to function in this environment. But it also creates an environment where my patient know that they are in a safe environment, that I don't make decisions because it's something I can do. I don't decide to radiate you because I can do radiation. It's been discussed and we agreed that this was the best port of call. You know, that absolute support professionally and emotionally just really, really adds so greatly to my ability to do a really difficult job. That multidisciplinary approach is so important. And the fact that you've got experts within each of their respective disciplines coming together, looking at a problem through their lens and their discipline, and then collectively being able to derive the best course of treatment for your patient. We are yet to live in a breast cancer-free world, and to pursue this ideal, more research is needed. What would you say have been some of the recent research breakthroughs that really hold promise for prevention or, or treatment of breast cancer? For me, the most exciting breakthrough will always be knowledge. So a few years ago, probably 15 years ago, but it's it's probably also more recent than that, we just saw breast cancer as a single disease. So a big lump was bad and a small lump was good and a lymph node under the arm was bad and when there wasn't one that was good. And often our decisions were based on this concept of size. But we now understand that there are at least four subtypes of breast cancer and they are treated according to the genetic makeup that is driving the the cancer itself. You know, in the old days, we were giving 11 women chemotherapy to save one life. Uh, And now we've got uh, more advanced genetic sequencing to distinguish between cancers that would benefit from chemotherapy and those that would not. So for me, that's really changed the way I practice medicine. We had to make these decisions ourselves um, a few years ago. We had to decide, is this someone who needs chemo or not? And unfortunately, the data shows us that we were wrong 50% of the time. So 50% of the time, I omitted giving chemo. I gave it where it shouldn't have been given with no benefit. So I think um, just understanding that there are different subtypes of breast cancer and that that determines our treatment, to me, is the biggest step forward. And then we're looking at new treatment options. We're looking at um, immunotherapy, although it's not um, showing such exciting promise in breast cancer yet, Subsequent lines of immunotherapy, I'm sure we're going to have more and more success with our immunotherapy options. And then there's a very exciting uh, new way of thinking, and I absolutely love this. It's like, if you can imagine, a paratrooper jumping from an aeroplane with a little backpack on his back. And then looking for a cancer cell, identifying the cancer cell connecting to the cancer cell and then blowing up the backpack. So a big part of our treatment options is what we call antibody drug conjugates, um, especially in the triple negative subgroup. And these drugs minimize chemotherapy effects to normal tissue because you selectively 
bind to the, the cancer cell or as selectively as possible. And then the chemotherapy is delivered into the cancer cell itself. And I think that's going to be um, a big part of our future treatment in breast cancer. That sounds incredibly exciting, being very uh, specific about treatments. In terms of medicine and women in leadership posts and managerial posts, top positions in the medical world still tend to be occupied by men. You're a breast cancer specialist and people expect you to make the right decisions at all times because this is literally their, their life in your hand, hands. And whilst you make every effort to succeed, do you ever feel that you are judged by your gender and not by your capabilities? I gave a lot of thought to this question um, because someone else asked me this recently. I would like to answer in three ways. I think the first one is initially when a patient meets me, I do think there is a form of bias. Um, but once I've taken them through the explanation of their disease, I actually spend a lot of time on education. Um, and I find that they leave feeling educated and feeling safe. So I often get comments, oh, you're so young. And I said, well, I've been a doctor for 17 years. I don't know what you expect um, a doctor to look like. So I often get that comment. But I find that I, I settle that once I've had an opportunity to have the floor with my patient. The second aspect I'd like to answer from was the way I came into the hospital. And initially, I felt that I had to work 10 times harder than any male colleague. Um, I, it felt like I had to shine. It felt like I had to be present all the time at every clinic, at every discussion. Um, and the first two years were really hard for me in a man's world. And then something happened. And this is the third comment I'd like to make. I realized that it's possible for men also to feel uncertain and that they need to prove themselves in the first two years and what if some of it was real and what if some of it was my perception of myself and I found myself in one of the clinics so um, in the main hospital in our own unit where it's very safe but in the main hospital I'm often in combined clinics where I'm the only female and this one day I found myself speaking a female voice not speaking a male voice, not speaking a problem-solving voice, the voice that gives them this chemo, do this radiation. I found this emotive voice of empathy and care and love that went above and beyond this male approach of problem-solving. And everyone felt a little bit weird uh, because I'd been suppressing this part of myself. I'd been trying to conform to their way of being. And in that moment, I just couldn't care anymore. I was like, okay, listen up, this is me. I'm emotive, I'm instinctual, I'm feminine, I'm loving, and I see things from a different way. But if we look at it from both our ways, we're probably going to end somewhere where the patient actually benefits. So I started a very emotional um, discussion a few years ago. It must have been about 
five or so years ago, um, but that initially it was very, very awkward at Combined Clinics. And the men found it very strange that all of a sudden we were talking about the impact on the children and the cost of, of treatment and how this family would survive and what you're doing to the breadwinner. And and all of a sudden our dialogue started changing. You know, it took two or three months and the boys joined in. And during the COVID times when we were all really struggling emotionally, you found doctors speaking to each other saying, I'm tired, I need help. I found that our emotional discourse was so different to many other places because we had gotten used to being human. And I'm so proud of who I am now in the workplace. I no longer try to be a problem solver. I bring my feminine strength and wisdom with me to work, and I'm so proud of it. That is such an interesting development, and in a way you've helped shift the dynamics within the working world that you operate and function in, changing culture. So it's really talking to the heart. It is. It is talking to the heart, and it's so much more difficult to be dismissive or be quick in making a decision when it's just a name on a piece of paper. But when you know where this patient comes from, um, you do take that decision a whole lot more serious when that person becomes humanized to you, when you know what matters to them. So I find that the care we provide as a consequence is I, th I think that we offer excellent care at our facility and I'm very proud of our team. And I'm proud of all the progress we've made in embracing the emotiveness of the person in front of us. You're listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and we're talking to Dr. Lizanne Langenhofen, who is a clinical and radiation oncologist with the Panorama MediClinic in Cape Town. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Thinking back for a moment along your, your journey, so being a doctor for 17 years, being an oncologist for eight years, what were some of the factors that made you decide to pursue oncology as your specialization? I used to be um, someone who enjoyed adrenaline a lot. So in our internship, we had a lot of adrenaline, but it was really when I did community service in Atlantis that I learned the meaning of adrenaline. Um, so in those days, we were one doctor on the premise um, and we had to manage everything from complicated cases. We were having a problem with a troublesome birth to stabbings and shootings and car accidents and heart attacks and strokes. And, you know, the, at night it was very far to get to your nearest referral hospital. So we referred to Somerset and um, um, in the day we had a chopper. But mostly at night you were alone it was very very long before a car could get to you for support and it almost in that year felt like life had no meaning nothing had meaning it was just one patient after the next and one horrible thing after the next I remember all the trauma I used to see and how there was no meaning to life almost you know you just had this emergency you didn't know you were dealing with something bad had happened and you just went from one bad thing to the next and the next and the next. 
And I thought, I sort of got tired of adrenaline. I wanted there to be connection. I wanted there to be meaning. I wanted to know who the person was that I was helping. I wanted to know how to help them um, because that's a problem in an emergency setting. You, you don't know what matters to that person. And I remember the one day or the first day I became aware of that. One of my patients was dying and um, I walked past the bed and she looked cold. So I closed her feet for her. And then the family almost had a heart attack. They're like, you can't close the feet. She doesn't want the feet to be closed. Please, you can't. She likes her feet to be open. And something so small had such a big impact on me because I realized that we think we know how to help someone, but we don't. And that is what oncology offers me. It offers me the ability to connect, to understand, to learn, to ask, to honor the person, to honor the journey. Um, and I see every journey with me, regardless of whether it, it, the outcome doesn't really matter. But this art piece that we create as we battle this together, we go through this process together, I'm so proud of the changes and the growth that happens. I'm so proud of the connections that are made. Um, so that's really how I came into oncology from feeling nothing to feeling everything and respecting nothing to respecting everything. Amazing contrast to having now such deep care and empathy with the people that you see. What would you say are some of the challenges that women face entering the medical field and importantly, staying in the medical stream? I see this as a hundred meter race. So the men and the women start at the same line and then the men get to run. Um, and we, 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 we leave at the same point. I mean, that's fair enough. The gun goes off, but there are hurdles on the female side. The first hurdle is being a mom, taking care of your family, conforming to society's ideas of what a woman should be. You know, even though I am a professional woman who has long days, that doesn't mean I get to not contribute to my child's play or my child's school. And so I think it's really difficult for women to manage that, but also manage everything else, you know, your occupation, but also everything else. I had this discussion with my husband um, a lot. I think that professional women are often hard on ourselves because we think we have long days and we feel guilty towards our children because of our long days and other morning jobs. But remember the person who assists you when you go to your local shop. Their days are just as long as our days. You don't now all of a sudden have less responsibility because you have less responsibility at work. Often that involves informal travel, which takes a longer time. It's less predictable. So you need to leave earlier to get to work. You still have these long shift days and then you have to take transport back home, which means that working hard and not being at home is actually something that we all have in that's a universal problem for, for women in every aspect of, of society. I think these problems that we face are universal. I, I don't believe they come with a certain job description. I think they are universal. 
Um, and that is the one thing we have to start normalizing. We have to start normalizing the discussion around the pressures faced by women in all walks of life, in the workplace, in how they take care of their families and sustain work where they're often not treated as equals. It's a very difficult discussion to have, but we should start having it. And I wonder in that if companies and organizations shouldn't be doing more to support women, whether it's a case of having the ability to change the hours that you work with a a more flexible structure. I just think that there's better ways of doing things. I agree. Um, I had a discussion with a colleague recently um, where he spoke about dedication. Uh, One of our colleagues said um, he's going to work less hours and work five hours a day on certain days and not always be available. And my other colleague said, well, look at that. Um, You know, he lacks dedication. Some people, you can't stand it in the trenches, you know, and then there are those of us in the trenches that just keep going. And I felt so sad at that comment because that's often a part of what's holding us back in creating change, the belief that if you're not in the trenches and giving you 110%, that you're somehow less of a doctor or less of a mom or less of whatever you you are in that moment. And it really got me thinking because in that moment, I was like, no, we've got to be in the trenches. We've got to be in the trenches, people. We can't be seen to getting out of the trenches. We've got to be in the trenches and we've got to be, be fighting and we've got to be working hard and we've got to be part of the team. But, but do we? Or can we change that narrative? Can we change the narrative to saying, oh, he is such a clever man. He's got balance. He puts his family first. It's amazing to see how he can make it work financially. Why don't we chat to him and see how he's doing this and maybe our quality of life can improve. But instead of celebrating someone for being different and and wanting to lead a more balanced life, it's about you're out of the trenches, you're out of the team, you know. So that, that, that mindset of having to sacrifice everything for a job that really won't miss you for a month after you're gone, you know. That's the sad part, isn't it? That your contributions, your dedication are not um, lasting. So if you had a crystal ball, if there was one thing that you could change to ensure that women had a better future or rather have a better future, what would that be? You have to choose one. You can choose as many as you like. (laughs) I wouldn't mind a female president. Um, I think it would be a beautiful way of bringing to the fore issues that affect women and also leading by example. I think our idea, especially in our country, is to live a male leader um, and a leader's style. But if we can lead with heart and intelligence, I think that would really be wonderful. The second thing I would want to change, and I don't know how big a problem this really is, because I think it's a subjective observation on my behalf, but I often feel that we don't cheer each other on enough. I often feel that there's jealousy and there is gossiping, oh, look at her, she's 
she's achieved that, but at the cost of that and, 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 and you see now she's a bad mom and a da, 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 da. And then this one is pretty, but she has to do that and that and that. And I often find that we can't come out and say, you just got an, an achievement at work. We're so proud of you and end the conversation there without measuring it against ourselves. You know, and, and I think the newspapers and the magazines teach us about seeing ourselves rel- relative to someone else or an ideal. And so we see ourselves relative to other women as well. And that is the one thing I think we, we can actively try to change. We can actively encourage each other, cheer each other on, change the narrative. Um, oh, she's a bitch, look at her. Um, when she's just being assertive. But if a male said the same thing, he would never have been called a bitch. He would have just been assertive. You know, and we contribute to that language. We contribute to the language of, oh, yeah, look at how much weight she's gained. No, we don't have to contribute to that language. We don't have to comment on it. We can comment on her beautiful soul or the things that she's achieved. And we can leave out that little bit where we see other women relative to ourselves and just really, really create a safe space where women don't fear being labelled as bossy or bitchy. You know, there are a lot of, of narratives that go with being an assertive woman, and I think we can start changing that. And I think that will make a big difference. And it's such a simple thing to do. It's generating that positivity, generating that nurturing spirit and wholeheartedly supporting our woman folk. Dr. Langenhofen, we're coming towards the end of the show. And one question that I ask all my guests is about the factors that they consider have contributed to their success. So can you please tell us what would you say have been some of your key drivers for success? My uncle had a, an injury when he was 19 years old and he had uh, he fractured his C-spine and he became paralyzed. So from a very young age, I learned about caring for someone, even if you didn't feel like it. You know, if he couldn't even lift his hands to wipe something off his face. So we were always asked to do small things that we take for granted. And I remember, you know, when I was much younger, feeling irritated by the requests until I realized that he can't actually do it for himself. And he didn't choose this. And I'll never forget that moment where I went from irritation of a child to the maturity of understanding what love and compassion means in that moment. It means not when you feel like it and not when it's appropriate or nice or you're calm and rested and you've had a good day. Caring and love means being that all the time. When you're a mom, you have to be there all the time. You have to be all of those things. Um, so I think that was the, the defining factor for my life that steered me towards meaning and towards taking care of those, often without a voice. So when we were in the emergency unit in um, during my community service, if someone came in with a cancer diagnosis, I remember they were pushed to the back of the queue, you know, because they were the dying ones. We had to focus on the living ones. Um, But that's such an outdated way of looking at cancer. And so many of our cancers are cured. But for my uncle, I wanted to be a voice 
against what society often thinks. I think if you are in a wheelchair that you are mentally disabled or if you have cancer that they can push you in a corner and you can just lie there and you can wait your turn because everyone else are the living. Um, so I think that was for me my most defining moment is being a voice for those who not always have their own voices. That's a really powerful story. Thanks for, for sharing it with us. Lastly, as we close out today's conversation, please can you use this platform to share a few words of inspiration or wisdom with younger women that are listening to the show today? My best advice would be be unashamedly who you are. It's often the things that set us apart that add the value. Even if we're broken, there's a concept in uh, Japan where a piece of pottery can be mended if it's broken using gold thread. And it actually becomes worth more in its broken and repaired state than it ever was when it was perfect and new and shiny. And I think often part of imposter syndrome, which is also something I think many women struggle with, we see all the brokenness in ourselves um, and we focus so much on that and we try to conform to what the standard is and what the standard should be, that we miss these beautiful golden threads that, that run through our lives. And these are actually the things that set you apart. These are the things that people remember and appreciate. It was only when I embraced being a female voice in a male-dominated world that I not only changed my own internal voice, but I changed the discourse for a whole hospital. And I'm hoping that as that message spreads between hospitals, that we can actually start making a change in in how we talk and how we approach things. And that can only happen if you allow yourself to be who you are and bring to work your gifts. And they might not be the gifts that traditionally celebrated, but they might just be what's needed. Thank you for those very important words. I, I feel that my key takeout of today's conversation has been about destroying the stereotypes and embracing your uniqueness and your own inherent gifts, being able to be true to yourself and contribute to society. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and we have been talking to Dr. Lizanne Langenhofen, who is a clinical and radiation oncologist with the Panorama Medic Clinic in Cape Town.